So we're in a series of messages called The Emptiness Experiment. We're going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, we want you to take out your bulletins if you're in-house, because in the bulletins we have a note page, and it looks like this. We want you to fill in the blanks and follow along with us. If you're watching online, there's a note tab right there at waterschurch.tv. Waterschurch.tv, they'll have a note tab right there, and you can fill in the blanks digitally. So we're in chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to do a message called, it's right there on the screen, The Gospel's Answer to Difficult People. The gospel's answer to difficult people, please do this real quickly right off the top. On this message, uh, you'll see the title, The Gospel's Answer. Please circle the word gospels. Please circle that word because I'm not giving you the therapist's answer to difficult people. And I'm not, I'm not going to give you pop psychology's answer. I'm not going to give you advice. for. Well, we'll give you some advice, but we're going to give you the gospel's answer. The gospel shapes not just... Where we spend eternity, it, it shapes how we live on this earth now. Amen. And so today, that's the answer we're looking at. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Would you stand with me? We're going to read the last verse of chapter 9, first verse of chapter 10, because I believe the chapter division is wrong. Those were added. Chapter divisions were added way later after the biblical text came to us in the 1300s. So sometimes the chapter division I don't, is wrong. And this is one of those cases, in my opinion. I could be wrong too. But here we go. The last verse of chapter 9, verse 18, reading together into chapter 10, verse 1. It's going to be up on the screen. And we'll read it. One, two, three. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. And this, even with talking about dead flies and stinky perfume, is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this moment that we have to share together around your scriptures. Your scriptures are light. Your word is truth. It is spiritual food for our souls. We are hungry to hear not the words of men, but your words. I pray that the meditation of my heart and the meditation of my, and the, and, and the words of my lips will be pleasing in your sight and that we will see Jesus. In his name we pray and everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a seat. Do you have some difficult people in your life? Raise your hand if you got a difficult person right now, at least one difficult person. Oh, ho, ho. captive audience today. Raise your other hand if you're sitting right next to them right now. This is where healing begins. A lot of spouses with both hands up. <laughs> you came to the right service. If you don't have a difficult person in your life, just wait. <laughs> Three hard facts about difficult people. Number one, difficult people are everywhere. Write it down. They are everywhere. So you know, you know what happens is that you get the job that you want and you think, okay, I'm finally going to be happy doing this job. I've been looking for this job. I've been waiting for this job. You get the job. And then one day, they show up. They may have been, they may have been there already, but you didn't know that they were a problem. Or they just got hired. And then you have that difficult, awkward, like, one-moment conversation with them. How many know what I'm talking about? 
And then from that moment forward, there's always like that thing, that thing between you and that person. You can't put your finger exactly on it, but there's something about them. Just, I don't, and then you kind of avoid them. You kind of go to lunch when they are back. You know what I'm saying? Or you leave early, you avoid, you go to the other hallway to walk around. You like go out of your way to get to another part in the office just to avoid them. Or you go to college and you think I'm finally at school. Woohoo, freedom, yeah. Move into your dorm room and you didn't realize your dorm mate was a difficult person. Or a professor is just out to get you. They got you. I don't know, there's just something about you then. There's, just, there's this thing, you both bug each other or they're just, you know, they got you labeled and you got them labeled. It's just problem professor. Or you got married. Went on the honeymoon, everything was fantastic. Surf, sun, beach, got back home, and you learned the fullness of the phrase, the honeymoon is over. <laughs> you married a difficult person. Difficult people are everywhere. The reason why is because sinners are everywhere. Solomon has already explained this to us in chapter 7, verse 20. He says, there is not a righteous person. Surely there is not a righteous person. Not on the earth who never does wrong. Everybody's difficult because everybody's a sinner. And sin brings disharmony in our relationships. Now, you have to see this theologically because our sin has separated us from God, who in his very nature is perfect community, perfect, harmonious community. Think about it. Father, son, and what? And who? Holy Spirit. And yet, okay, now think about the, whole, the, the, the Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They have been with each other from eternity to eternity. And they've never had a single argument. <laughs> That's a miracle. In fact, when you read the scriptures, you will see that the Father is always ex exalting the Son. The Son is always exalting the Father. The Spirit is always exalting the Son. This, and, the, and the Son is always uh, exalting the Spirit. They're always building each other up. They're always talking about how good the other member of the Godhead is. That is the community that we were called to be a part of. But sin has come into the creation and the created order. And it has disturbed our harmony, not just between ourselves, but between ourselves and God who lives in perfect harmony. So if you have had a difficult person in your life, a difficult and challenging relationship, just understand that the root of the problem is not personalities. It is sin. There is a brokenness in them or in you that has upended what should be harmonious. Number two, difficult people can affect anyone. Solomon's going to explain this because he's talking in chapter 10 about a lot of difficult people in his life, but I, th I thought about this. It took me a while to see it. Solomon is king at the time. And I just had this question, like, if you're, if you're a king in the ancient world and you've got a difficult person in your life, there's a real quick solution. There's either, either the, the castle jail cell, right? Or there's the guillotine or the, you know, whatever. Just give it to the person. Yeah, take them out. I don't like them. Just snuff them out. That was how it worked in the ancient world. So I had this question, and maybe you could answer it faster than I came to the answer, but this is the question that I had. Like, who would be a difficult person for a king? Who do you think? Yeah, your wife, said by a man sitting next to his wife right over here. I mean, good luck, buddy. 
Well, maybe, but you know, in Esther, the king doesn't like his wife and he banishes her. So it's not necessarily, I thought about this, other kings, other kings, other national leaders, they could affect anyone. Any boss could have a difficult vendor. Any president of a company could have a difficult competitor. Uh, any president could have difficult legislators or national leaders, international leaders that, that he has a hard time when my point is no matter how high you climb in life, no matter how high you get, there still could be a difficult relationship that'll challenge you. This is what Solomon says in verse five. He says, there's an evil that I have seen under the sun. And he says, as it were, an error proceeding from who? From rulers. Folly is set in high places and the rich sit in a low place. And he says, I've seen princes on, I'm sorry, I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. In other words, some people are in positions of power and they should not be there. Difficult people. Number three, difficult people may not know that they are difficult. In fact, I've found that they often don't. You know, you know what I'm talking about? You go up and you tell them that this is what's bothering me about you and they say, what, really? They don't know sometimes that they are difficult. So, so Solomon says it like this. He says, look, a fool, when he walks in the road, lacks sense. Verse three, and, everyone he, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. In other words, the only guy that doesn't know he's a fool is the fool. <laughs> so, so he says, look, you, you could be bothered by this person and they don't even know it. Which lends to point three A, Little subpoint: I may be difficult for someone else. If you can't say amen, say ouch. Because sometimes that's what you are for other people. Everybody's a sinner. Everybody's got some flaws. Everybody's got some issues that's going to rub some other people the wrong way. You might be that person for someone else. As much as other people might bother you, <laughs> you might be bothering them. Turn to your neighbor and say, I knew there was something wrong with you. I knew it. Uh, there was a recent article in the New York Times written by Lisa Gottlieb. She, is a, um, she does this article for the Atlantic publication, the Atlantic Monthly, and she's kind of like a Dear Abby columnist. She answers questions from people that are milled in. But she wrote an article in the New York Times called, What Brand is Your Therapist? And she's been a therapist for over 20 years. And she talks about the fact that over the last two decades, she has seen a cultural shift, a paradigm shift for people who come to her looking for psychoanalysis. She says, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, most of my clients came to me and said, I have some issues. I've got to start changing some things about me. But she says, and I've watched this over the past 20 years, it has shifted by and large more clients than ever before. Actually, the lion's share of my clients, she says. Come to me not looking for things to change in themselves, but guess who? Other people. So now we go to pop psychology, pop therapist. Now we go to psychoanalysis to get other people to change. Do you realize the insanity of this? You go to ask someone else to change someone else because you don't like how they treat you? Do you understand how powerless that is, how, how disabling that is? If, if everybody else is the problem in your life, do you realize how powerless that makes you? Yeah, I don't blame you if you just want to give up on relationships because you really can't change people. I can't change people. The more you try to change people, the less they change. You can't change others. The only person that you can open your heart to see change is you. This is the gospel's 
answer to difficult people. I might be difficult. In fact, I am. I think that's a great confession. I also give people some bad, some bad vibes. I throw shade. <laughs> so Solomon knows what you're going through. And I know I've been there. I still am there on some occasions. And there are some people. You got, you got, you got the holidays coming up, for heaven's sakes. Thanksgiving is weeks away. They're on the guest list. <laughs> or you have that meeting at work this week and you're just dreading it. There's nothing worse, if, I, if you're honest, about, you know, you know first world problems. I, I guess I would say that one of the worst things is to have someone renting space in your head. You think about them when you wake up. You think about them when you go to bed. You think about them at lunch. They're just, and they just bug you. And you don't know what to do. Okay, four answers. Number one, do not run away from difficult people. Do not run. This is Solomon's first advice to people who have challenging relationships in their life. In Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 4, he says, if the anger of a ruler rises against you, do not leave your place. Underline, do not leave. Don't leave. Do not leave your place for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Now, it's just a fact of life that sometimes you are in a challenging relationship with someone and you cannot leave. You cannot leave. Such as when you're working for a king. I know we don't have kings in this world, but business owners can be kind of cultural kings, if you will or professors, or, you know, people of position, leadership positions. You can't leave. You can't quit school over that one professor. Sometimes the job market is so tight, you can't afford to change jobs. He says in that situation, look at what he says in chapter 8, backing way back up last, uh, to the two chapters ago. He says, obey the king since you vowed to God that you would. In other words, you signed up for this. Don't try to avoid doing your duty. Don't run away. And don't stand with those who plot evil. In other words, you have a choice here. Don't run away, but at the same time, don't join in with the bitter, angry, evil people. For the king can do whatever he wants. And then he says, his command is backed by great power. No one can question or resist it. Those who obey him will not be punished. Those who are wise, underline wise. Those who are wise will find a time and a way to do what is right. In other words, patience. Wait. Figure it out. For there is a time and a way for everything, even when a person is in trouble. You say, I've got a job. The boss asked me to do bad things. Pastor, what I do? Find a way. Be patient. I got a person that's just driving me crazy. Okay, wait, don't flip out. Don't, don't go crazy. And don't run. Sometimes you cannot leave. You need the job, or they're your children, or they're your spouse, and you vowed to God we'd stay together. I want to make sure that we understand that I'm talking about difficult people. I'm not talking about abusive people. There's a difference, and you should run away from abusive people. But I'm talking about difficult people. And so verse 8, I mean, verse 3 of chapter 8 in the ESV says, do not be hasty to go from the king's presence. In other words, don't freak out. Don't, don't be like, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. That's some of you. You're saying that all the time about your job, about your spouse, about your kids, about your life, about your whatever. I got to get out of here. I just got to get out of here. I just got to run away from all these people that are bugging me. And here's what's going to happen to you. 
You are going to leave difficult person over here. You are going to run over here. It might be another state. might be another country, for heaven's sakes. And you will show up, and guess who will be there waiting for you? That same person. No, 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 no. Different skin, same spirit. Different face, same person. Different accent, maybe, same attitude. Right? This is the reality. There are different types of people. So I find in my own life that if I ran away from them over here and I ran over here to this place to think, finally, free at last, free at last. There they are again. How did you get here? <laughs> you run, you do not solve any problems for your life. So this brings me to number two. Let difficult people develop you. I want you to take another hard look at that difficult person. Not physically right now, so don't turn to the right or to the left. I want you to take another hard look at them in your mind, and I want you to picture them as God's university class. It's a three-credit class. And you, had got, you have got, it's a basic requirement for God's university program of life. And by that meaning, you cannot graduate until you pass. This is not an elective. This is foundation, this is liberal arts right here, all right? So you have got to pass this class said difficult person, class. You might be in session right now. And if you run away, it's like dropping out. D-O in your grade. And God says, okay, you dropped out in the first semester. Guess what? Second semester, there they are again. <laughs> or you quit, or you flip out, or whatever. And God says, don't, I'm sorry. You are in my university class, and I have assigned this class to you to make you and shape you into the person that I want you to be. You keep running away because you don't think they're good for you, but I say they're good for you. You keep, you keep blaming me, God says. This is something you're saying this. You are blaming God for the very person that God has assigned to you to chisel you and to make you a better version of you. And God is a wonderful academic dean. He does not give up on a single student. <laughs> we love those verses, though, don't we, about God not giving up on us? We love those verses. Faithful is he who is began a good work in you, and he is faithful to bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Oh, yes, God is always with me. Jesus said in Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you until the very ends of the age. In Hebrews 12, he is the author and the finisher of our faith. God will never give up on you. That means that sometimes in not giving up on you, he will assign to you projects that irritate you. So there's a two-edged sword to that God always being there for you experience. Don't run. You run, you run right back into them. So what do we do when we can't run? Okay, verses 8 to 10 are going to sound incredibly confusing. 11, sorry. But they are so helpful. Here's what he says in verse 8 of chapter 10. He who, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through the wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. He who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Now, I know all those verses are perfectly clear to all of you. <laughs> what the heck is he talking about? Okay, he's talking about people who, who are out to get you. Uh, or they bug you and they don't even realize that they bug you. But first, out to get you people. That, that's the first two illustrations. That somebody digs a pit for you. I know this is talking about 
people coming after you, out to get you, because David talks about this in Psalm 35, verse 7. He says, for without cause, they hid a net for me. Without cause, they what? They dug a pit for me. So there are some people who are digging pits in your life. They are out to get you. The second illustration backs this up. There are some people who are breaking down walls to get to you. This is an attack formation. They are just needling you and coming for you and gunning for you, and you know that, you know this, and it drives you nuts. But then there are some other people. The rest of the verses talk about this. There's some people, they're just splitting logs, and some, someone gets endangered. And some people, they're just, you know, they're just quarrying stones, and they get hurt. So sometimes it just happens naturally that some people come after you, and some people feel like they're after you. But they're not vicious. They're not maliciously after you. But for the people who are maliciously after you, Solomon gives us some great counsel. Okay, letter A. Here it is. Develop patience in the midst of personal attack. When someone is gunning for you, be patient. Because that person who digs a pit for you may just fall into it themselves. In other words, their character will catch up to them somewhere. Say, no, pastor, the person that's bugging me, they're getting away with it. They're getting away with it. Patience. The Bible says that God always repays. And he repays right on time. And by the way, he repays in a way that is so much better than you could ever do. So there's this, actually, this is a biblical illustration in the book of Esther with a guy named Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jew living in Persia in captivity. He's the guy who counsels Esther. Well, there's this, there's this Persian officer, right-hand side to the king, who hates Mordecai with everything in his heart because Mordecai, the Jew, refuses to bow down to him when he walks by him. So Haman conspires and digs at this guy and goes after this guy and wants to kill Mordecai. So he goes to the king and he says, there's some people in your kingdom that don't respect you. What should we do with them? He says, do whatever you want with them. So Haman goes out and he builds some gallows on which he plans to hang Mordecai. And Mordecai doesn't respond. He doesn't run. He doesn't freak out. See, he's a Jew. He understands that God's with him even in the midst of dark places. Patience. He just buys his time, waits for God to do something. And he counsels Esther and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, before all that happens... The king is hearing the annals of his kingship in the history of his kingdom. And, he rem and he's reminded of a moment where Mordecai helped save his life. And he wakes up and he says, wait a second, what did we ever do for that guy Mordecai? And they said, well, you were very busy with other things and you never did anything for him. He says, man, we've got to bless this guy. We've got to reward this guy. And at that very moment, Haman walks in to ask to kill Mordecai. And Haman, and he goes, hey, Haman, I got a guy I really want to shower some blessings on. What should I do for him? And Haman thinks it's him. He says, oh, put him on your best horse and parade him in your clothes and have everybody celebrate him. And he goes, do that exact thing for Mordecai the Jew. Haman has to do it. It comes around. And at the end of the story, Haman, Haman ends up hanging on his own gallows that he built for Mordecai. The point of the story is, when people are gunning for you, Christian, when people are gunning for you, child of God, remember your father is watching the whole thing. Amen. He understands what they're doing to you. He understands what it, how, how it makes you feel. He understands. And he has a vested interest in who you're becoming. And he's going to protect you. You're in the palm of his hand. No man shall ever pluck you out. So be patient. Don't flip out. If your response is always, blah, 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 blah. 
You're not, you're, not, you're not thinking about the fact that there's a sovereign heavenly father who has everything under his control and knows you by name. Letter B, develop wisdom in your response to these people. Develop wisdom in your response. That's what he says by verse 10. And the New Living Translation is a little bit clearer. He says, if the ax is dull, sharpen the blade. Sharpen your response. Wisdom. Maybe you need to think about how you talk. Maybe, they, maybe that person is wearing on your last nerve. And you need to think about this. You need to think, okay, good. At least it's my last nerve. Which means all the other nerves are deadened already. So it's just one more nerve that needs to die, and then this person will no longer bother me. Think about that, right? They've worn down all the other nerves, and now they're on your last nerve, and you can say, okay, just in a matter of time, this nerve will be so dead by that person, they will never bug me again. I'm just telling you, if you are still being bugged by the same person or the same type of person who bugged you 10 years ago, can I tell you, honestly and in love, you need to grow up. You are 10 years older now. That person was meant to show you, to teach you how to be less sensitive. There's some people in this room, you're so sensitive. Everybody bugs you, everybody. Maybe you're the problem. If you came to the service today, you say, Tim, Pastor Tim, I don't have one difficult person, I have 15. Maybe it's you. Maybe you need to get a little bit tough, thick-skinned, soft-hearted, thick-skinned. Right? So, so that some people are hard-hearted and thin-skinned. Hard-hearted, thin-skinned. Spiritual maturity is going from hard-hearted and thin-skinned to soft-hearted and thick-skinned. See, that was worth writing down, but you didn't. But anyway, <laughs> watch it later. You've, you've got to learn that some people who are making your feelings hurt are actually there to teach you to be less sensitive so you can toughen up. He says, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no use in being a charmer. What does he mean by that? Let her see. Develop some charm. Develop some charm. Like, um, this, the New Testament says it like this. Never repay evil for evil. Repay evil with what? Good. In return for cursing, offer what? Blessing. Charm them. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about uh, buttering them up. But, but bless them with your language. Speak tenderly to them. Say something nice about, compliment them. And make sure that the compliment is a true one. Okay? You don't want to just, you know, pretend or lie. You know? But how do you respond? How does it come back to them? Are you charming in your response? See, the southern Christians get this a lot better than us New England Christians. We know English is like, yeah, you can stick it. <laughs> Southern Christians are like, ah, bless your heart. <laughs> you offend a Southern Christian, like, bless your heart, right? Actually, I met a Southern pastor once. He told me, he said, you know what that means, bless your heart, right? That's Christianese for, hey, screw you, pal. <laughs> I said, really? I've, people have been saying that to me all week down here. Well, how do you respond to the people who come after you? Um, it's Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus says this. He says, look, 
I'm sending you out as sheep among what? Wolves. Some people are wolves. Some people are gnarly and nasty. Don't ever think that Jesus wasn't aware of this. If you're not aware of the fact that some people are nasty, it's because you haven't been listening to what Jesus actually said. So no Christian is without excuse here. You go, uh, you, you, some of you just became Christians recently. You just became Christians recently. You just got saved. Just got baptized. You're so full of love of Jesus. You're just loving Jesus, loving church, loving everything about it. And everybody that used to love you now hates you. And you're like, hey, what gives what Jesus said here? That person is, that person is going gonna, is gonna to turn on you. They, they're, they're wolves. Don't be ignorant Christians. We cannot afford to be ignorant. We actually have to expect some wolves. You can't just spiritualize everything. Some people are just nasty. And Jesus told you, guess what? Some people are just nasty. Be careful how you talk to them. Be careful what you give them. There's another passage that says, don't cast your pearls before swine. Isn't it a funny thing that Jesus that we have repainted, we have reimagined into this guy who's just happy, chappy, soft and cuddly and loves everybody. The same guy that we think did that is like that is the same guy who said, hey, some people are pigs. Well, that's not, no, right. He was real. And he understood that some people don't want, don't, don't deserve your attention, don't need your attention, don't, give, don't be a whipping post. Oh, they'll just push you around like that. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't give to dogs what is sacred. Some of you get in the same argument with the same non-believer at work every single week, and you're like, I'm going to wear him down. I'm going to wear him down. No, he's wearing you down. Walk away. Be at peace. Don't cast your pearls before swine. But here's the big point. God can and will use that difficult person in my life to make me a better person for life. That is your education. That is your school. And God has seen fit to put you in that class for such a time as this. I don't know why, but they are there. Number three, watch what you say about and to difficult people. Okay. Let's bear in here. Let's, let's have a kumbaya moment, okay? Come on, this one right here, huge. In the, in the age of social media, please be careful what you say and what you, uh, what you say about and what you say to difficult people. This is what Solomon says in verse 12 to 15. He says, the words, watch what you say. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. But the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. In other words, the fool who can't keep his mouth shut starts talking, and it just goes from bad to worse. Some of you know that because an escalation can happen in a simple conversation, and before you know it, you're screaming at each other. It's not going to make it better. So he says, a fool multiplies words. In other words, be quiet. Though no man knows what else to be, how can he tell him what will be after him? You never know what's going to go. If you keep talking, you never know what's going to happen. The toil of the fool wearies him. You're going to wear yourself out. Arguing, arguing, arguing. For he does not know the way to the city. In other words, this is a, a euphemism for saying he's so dumb he can't get anywhere. And then even in your thoughts, verse 20, he says, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. Watch what you say. When that person comes and needles you, you don't have to respond. The Bible says in Proverbs 15, 1, I love this, soft answer, a soft answer turns away what? 
wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Do you want it to escalate or do you want it to get better? You have the choice. You can respond viciously or you can respond softly. So I've waited all message to get to this one point. This is my favorite point today. <laughs> Best advice when aggravated, I want you to write this down. Never write it down. <laughs> it's a paradox, but it's true. When someone is aggravating you, I beg you, I plead with you, I, I implore you, in the age of social media, in the age where you can share anything with everybody, please do not write it down. I am so passionate about this. One point, I want you all to say it out loud back to me on the count of three, those four words on the screen. One, two, three. Say it like you mean it. One, two, three. Say it like your soul needs to hear it again. One, two, three. Never. Oh. In verse 20, he says, In your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, and some winged creature will tell the matter. Isn't it amazing how the logo for Twitter is a bird? Some of you young people, you share all your nonsense on social media. What you don't know is that future employers are going to look it up. Future college professors are going to find it. You're going to lose a job to somebody who is less qualified than you simply because you can't keep your mouth shut online. You think you've got to stop treating social media as if it's your personal garbage pail for all your emotional hang-ups. Number one, nobody wants to see it. Just letting you know. Nobody. Number two, the person who you're aiming it at, who, want, who you want to see it, does see it, and guess what they're doing? <laughs> I got them really riled up now. So congratulations. You've ruined your future, and you've made the person bugging you happy. Never write it down. Amen, sister. I have learned this. The hard way. I had a secular job one time. I wrote it down. Bad things came back. So my aunt, who got me the job, said, Oh, Tim, I should have told you in the professional world, never write it down. I said, Okay, thanks, auntie. Thanks, I won't. Years go by. I forgot about it. And there was a, got per, a church, uh, there was a person in our church, left our church, went to another church. And the pastor of that church, who got that new person from our church, who left on bad terms, by the way, sent me an email and said, What do you think about this person? So I got to my typewriter, my keyboard, sorry, my keyboard. What am I, living in 1980? My, my keyboard. <laughs> and I just, oh, and, oh, yeah, and I just, send. And guess what happened? That pastor, my trusted friend in ministry, printed out said email and gave it to the person who it was about. And the person who it was about came to the office and tried to attack me. I was out of the office. Thank God they attacked somebody else. Praise Jesus. <laughs> but I learned in that moment, never, never, don't write it down. <laughs> I am so passionate about this. I wish you would listen to me, but some of you are not going to. So God bless you. Go ahead, write it down. Learn your own hard lesson. Fine. 
know, the scripture, the scripture says, um, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice. As Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks and the fingers tweet. I'm pretty sure something about that verse is uh, new and added, but... <laughs> so years, about, you know, three years go by, and uh, this same pastor comes back to me, he comes to my office one day, and this time I, I'm wisdom, shrewd as serpents. So he comes to me and says, so so-and-so left my church and is coming to your church. I just wanted to know what they're doing, what they're saying. I said, I don't even know. I knew. I'm not telling you. And then the only thing that I said to him was this. I said, hey, you remember that email I sent you? He said, yeah. I said, man, I was wrong. That was a bad move on my part. I really blew it. Those people are fine people. No. He had nothing. He left my office quickly because he came fishing for crap, and I gave him blessing instead. You see, when wolves get blessing, they see it as cursing. They're hungry for blood. So if you don't give them blood, they run away. Some of you are suckers. You keep giving all the wolves in your life blood. And this is why all the malcontents come to you with all their issues. And sometimes they come to you, they don't even have an issue, and by the time they're done with you, they have an issue. Because you're the one who puts blood in the water, and you wonder why all the sharks are circling your ship. One day, if you don't learn to keep your mouth shut, one of those sharks is going to get you. Watch what you say to and about difficult people. A uh, great preacher down in Tulsa, Oklahoma, his name is uh, um, Craig Rochelle. And he says this, always be caught saying something wonderful about other people. It's great advice. Always be caught saying something. Somebody comes to you and says, hey, what do you think of that person? Wonderful person. Find something to compliment them about so that you do not become the lightning rod for criticism, gossip, and malicious conversation. I'm just telling you, this is for your good. And here's the number one reason why you want to Watch out how you handle difficult people. Here it is, number four, gospel's answer. Here we go. Let Christ lead you, lead you through this relationship. Why? Remembering he faced difficult people for you. That's the gospel's answer. The gospel's answer is that Jesus faced a pilot who washed his hands and couldn't stand up for Jesus. He faced the chief priests, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, who were jealous and envious of his movement and hated him and conspired together to put him to the death. He faced the Roman centurions, these muscle-bound men who took his hands, stretched them out on a cross, and nailed a spike through his wrists and through his feet. He faced all those people for you. So at the end of the day, the gospel changes how we React to other people. Someone's bothering you. Remember something. You were once bothersome to God, and he loved you through it. I wonder how many Christians need to be reminded of that. You were the problem. And Jesus said, I love you in spite of you, and I'll lay down my life to prove it. You are worth it to me.
And we got to go to 1 Peter here because 1 Peter totally lifts off the page from Ecclesiastes chapter 10. 1 Peter's talking about our challenging relationships. He's, he's talking about in, verse, in chapter 2, he says, look in verse 13, be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake. He says, for this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Some people are foolish. Do good. You'll silence them. Then he goes to the difficult relationships. He says, servants, be subject to your masters. Today we say, employees, be subject to your employer. Don't talk maliciously about your boss. Show respect, not just to the bad ones, um, good ones, but also to the bad ones. And then he says, chapter 3, he says, wives, be subject to your husbands. And then he says this, even if they don't listen to God, if you are quiet, if you are respectful, if you honor him, that behavior will win him over. Isn't it funny how we think the exact opposite behavior is what a bad husband needs. But the Bible actually contradicts everything that comes normal to us. Because remember, wisdom teaches us what is God's best, apart from what seems good. Some of you wives, you need to listen to this because you just keep nagging, you keep hammering, you keep going after. The scripture is saying, listen, just be quiet. Be quiet for your own sake because he will see quietness and he will respond far better. Some of you wives need to learn, don't poke the bear when it's angry, don't poke. He's a bear. That's what he is. He's a bear. Treat him as such. Walk away gently. Back away. And see what happens. Peace will come. Soft answer turns away wrath. So then going to the verse, chapter 2, verse 21, he says this. For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you. Underline for you. Leaving you an example that you should follow his steps. Not just what did Jesus do for me, but what did Jesus model for me? that I should do as well. He's my example. Verse 23, <clears throat> when reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself, just like Mordecai, to him who judges justly. And in verse 24, he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds. Say the last four words, everybody. Yeah, you, you have been healed. See, if Jesus did that for you and you were the problem for God, he's asking you to receive that and pay it forward to the people around you. That's the gospel's answer to difficult people. So sermon in a sentence, okay? Getting into this habit, I kind of like it. What was the sermon about? Here is what it was about. The gospel's answer to difficult people is to realize that I was the object of difficult conditions for Christ. And now I'm his healed representative for others. See, our nation is fractured. Our nation is divided. Our nation, the rhetoric is childish. Isn't it? It's just so hideous. Healing does not begin in Washington, D.C., or in policy and in law. Healing begins when our hearts are captivated by Christ. The church has a golden opportunity in this age of mud-flinging us versus them-ism to say, I used to be the enemy of my own father, and he came running to rescue me. Let me show you what it's like.